beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. And I'm good to drink while we talk? Yeah. Fantastic. That's the whole point of recording here at the Pacific Junction Hotel Bar, right? Like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, you've been doing a lot of press, though, lately for uh, United We Fan. Yeah, people have really picked up on the film. I'm actually uh, genuinely delighted that the uh, as, as people start talking about the film, people sort of spark up. I think everybody sort of has heard a little bit of what this film is about, and everyone's kind of heard there's such a thing as a fan campaign to save a show. Mm-hmm. So they seem to be pretty interested in knowing a little bit more about the film, which is great. So... Because you've been doing a lot of press, and uh, I'm going to introduce you and the documentary in a bit, but I just want to start off, because you've been doing a lot of press, and I know people have been asking you about your own TV shows and things like that, I want to switch gears slightly and ask, do you have any go-to TV snacks, or do you have a go-to TV couch, or a go-to TV chair, anything specific that you do, like some sort of TV ritual, what's your TV setup? I'm a big sit on the floor guy. I literally the couch will just like sort of be behind me. I like to put my back against the couch or like lie on the carpet. I have a I have a dog, a Shih Tzu called Lois Lane. That's my dog's <laughs> name. Yeah. So I come by the nerd, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but I like to like you know watch her scratch the carpet and then scratch her belly while sort of watching TV. I don't know for some reason I never sort of grew out of it. I came from a family of seven that was like f- five kids and you know the parents and so there was lots of us. It was hard to fight your way onto a couch. So yeah. I was the the floor guy so i just i think i'm just really used to that okay so from the floor you've risen to create a documentary <laughs> from the depths of the floor <laughs> yes you yeah. triumph this is uh, your whole saga now right yeah your arc now uh your origin story so i'm speaking with michael Spraga. you created a, a recent documentary that will be premiering at uh, april 28 at hot docs which is really exciting it's called united we fan yeah and I was asking you about TV because you actually did what some of the fans in the uh, the documentary did. You sent in a letter and you saved the TV show, did you not? Not a, I was certainly not a leader like the people that are in this film, but I you know I was a 13 year old kid who just really loved uh, crime story. It was uh, Michael Mann's. It was there was he had a big show, Miami Vice, that was massive. Yeah, that was cool. I watched that. Yeah, I mean I, I watched that. I had <laughs> I had a pink. With uh, sort of blazer with padded shoulders and little black flecks in it, and what? I wore it with like a white T-shirt and white pants. Like I, so I mean, I was in it, Mammy Vice. Yeah, but Mammy Vice was sort of like they were good guys for the most part. It was like the bad guy would be like, "You're not going to kill me, Crockett," and he would like lower his gun because he wasn't going <laughs> to do it. He had this like moral center. And then there was like Michael Mann's other show, Crime Story, and it was about like this de- 1960s hard detective Torello, and he was always chasing Ray Luca. But that show was like, you're not going to kill me, Torello. And Torello would like look over his shoulder and just like, blam, <laughs> shoot, <laughs> shoot the guy. He's like, eh, nobody's looking. And, he, and they would just, it was just something I had never really seen before. Not it wasn't the violence. I mean, it was just that it was serialized, that it was, Torello was relentlessly chasing one guy. And they really didn't do that in TV back then. You know, it, it took a lot of years till television became serialized where you, you followed it that way. So I didn't even recognize why I was so into that show. But like I had to watch it. I would skip parties to watch it, you know, because, you know, I get invited to the occasional party. Well, you had the outfit, though. You had the Mighty Vice outfit. You got to bring that pink pink jacket out for a tour. (laughs) How can you not invite that guy? That guy looks so cool. Yeah, we got to make fun of that guy. (laughs) We got to send him out to a party. But, uh, yeah, no, I love that show so much. And the the first season, one season, at the end of the season, a nuclear bomb goes off in the desert. That's how it ends. (laughs) With, like, the bad guy, and you're like, oh, my God, what happened? They had this massive shootout in the streets of Las Vegas, and then you drove out there. And it's like literally, it's like the best cliffhanger. And then I read in the paper that 
the show may not come back. And I was like, even at 13 years old, who didn't want to write during the summers, I would like, you know, sat down and like wrote Dear NBC and wrote them a letter. And it was a big thing for me to do that, to go get a stamp, you know, to do those things. I remember it was a very physical thing to do. It wasn't like, you know, pulling my phone out and hitting like, like, or something like that. Like I would like the show to come back. It was like why I like the show, why it was important for it to come back. And the show was renewed. And so I don't know if the letters had anything to do with that, like to think it did, but it just stuck with me. And it wasn't something I pursued with other shows. And I certainly loved other shows. I loved V. I was insane for the original V. V you know? got a short run too. It didn't yeah. get, I'm actually surprised, kind of flown completely under the radar with yeah. a lot of the revivals and things like no, that. No, they're making to a film. Oh, they are? Feature film. The original, Kenneth Johnson is going to make it to a film. It was a dream to always make it a film because it was two TV movies, right? Mm-hmm. It was V and V The Return. Uh, initially, like uh, MOWs was yeah. movie, which were huge back then, and now he's getting a chance to sort of make like the big budget V. So I'm very excited about that. Okay, because when Battlestar Galactica came back, I was like, that was really successful. It was well written. So yeah. it's like the you got to bring back V. You got to bring some of these classics back. People really love it, and what's awesome is there was an interview in my movie, and over one of the guy's shoulder, it's a guy Rob Owen, who's a writer for the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. It's been there for a long time, but there's. Uh, a little button on the wall which just has the V on it and it is from I think the reboot of V not the original V and just having that V in the movie every time I see it like I just look over his shoulder all the time <laughs> yeah. I'm like ah, I love that show <laughs> yeah we touched upon the fact that you you got up you put on pants cool pants obviously from Miami Vice yep. and you wrote a letter and you put a stamp on it and you sent it in Explain a little bit more about the documentary, because that's basically what a lot of the people in your documentary did, including the couple that saved Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, it used to be always letter writing. I mean, that was the way you had to sort of do it. It was snail mail. And yeah, I just, I kept my eye on those for years. I would always, you know, when you're sort of looking for something and you flip through a paper, your eyes would be attracted to it. And I was like, oh, that's neat. Farscape people are doing something. Or, oh, this is neat. Looks like the people for, I think it was Jericho. I remember the Jericho one. But it sort of what got me like really researching it was, the Chuck campaign. I had saw that they did this big campaign for Chuck. And the, and the Toronto Star did actually a very big article on it because the guy was from Toronto. So I was th- I thought that was pretty neat that somebody from Toronto could be a part of something like getting Chuck back on the air. And that's when I was like, hmm, I'm going to start reading a little bit more about it and then start to do research. And I initially thought it would be a good TV show, sort of like each episode being one show and what the campaign was and the verdict would be at the end like saved or not saved sort of thing that'd be a great docuseries docuseries, yeah right because there's there's a lot of campaigns i mean you touch on a number of them in the documentary but i i feel like you could have spent a few more minutes oh tons more i mean i I had a pitch i actually with uh, some friends did a research document and it was 48 shows deep and it was and every year there's more so it was just like we knew there would be tons more happening and it's 48 like good campaigns deep and so you know we're pitching that around it didn't happen uh then i got into feature doc making and then after my last doc about new york restaurants uh somebody was like what's next and i had all this research i'm like i really want to make this into a feature i think that might be a great way even potentially a way to sort of launch the idea of the show like make this hour and a half version because we have Roswell kind of mentioned in this movie their incredible campaign with sending in Tabasco sauce and stuff to get Roswell back but we have a half hour episode easily between the showrunner and the person who's fighting for it and all the archival material so we have a bare mention really of like Friday Night Lights another show I just absolutely love and again so everything that's in there 
has to been distilled down to it's sort of its emotional core. But there's business side of things that I would love to get into that, you know, the film just in getting it shorter, you lost some of that business stuff to really get into like, is it just fan campaigns that save a show? Is it fan campaigns plus what's going on creatively behind the scenes? And I think I would love to get into that a little bit more. It's, and I know that's why the end of the film, the credits is, says dedicated to all the fans of all the shows whose campaigns are not represented here because we really wish we could have done every show. They all deserve it. Yeah. I mean, you touched upon some of the... Uh attention uh, with person of interest you had a couple of the creators from the show and how they were they had kind of a certain story in mind and there was the what's the name of the girl yeah kaylee russell kaylee yeah Yeah, so she she and her group they were trying to save person of interest and they kind of did it and then the show went in the direction that they didn't feel comfortable with or they didn't like didn't Mm. anticipate and it's uh, it's a weird tension between all these and then the studios just trying or the channels just trying to make money off this stuff they just want to sell doritos so yeah. they're they're not always interested in quality necessarily, right? They're just interested in some of the demographics and what these shows bring in. So there's yeah. like a weird tension between all these three groups and and their different agendas in a sense. Yeah, Person of Interest is a real interesting story because there was a show that was it's CBS, CBS, NCIS, you know, CSI. They love the acronyms. I'm actually surprised Person of Interest wasn't just called POI. Like yeah. I really am. Like <laughs> I thought like they like those acronymy shows, uh, and they like procedurals because they do well for them on the initial view, you know, a lot of people watch them. And then they sell well into syndication because, you know, you can be on TNT in the mornings and that's why Law & Order does really well, Chicago Fire and all that stuff. That's what they had. And then second season, Jonathan Nolan, who was the creator of that, you know, who did The Dark Knight and really likes, you know, serialized stuff. He really does. They started to make the show more serialized and that changed the show. What it really did is brought in very devout fans. Like when something is serialized, people are hooked in in a different way. But you're not necessarily going to get the tens of millions of viewers that like NCIS and CSI get. But you're going to have dedicated viewers, which is great. But CBS doesn't want that. That's not what their brand is, you know. And they're not in the Jonathan Nolan business. They love that it's Jonathan Nolan, but they're in the CBS business. And so that sort of hurt their ratings while also making them sort of a comic con sort of show. And then the other problem with Person of Interest was it's called Owning Both Sides, where Warner Brothers makes Person of Interest, but CBS airs it. So they only make money on the initial first airing of Person of Interest on the advertisements that they sell, right? And so that's it. Versus a show that CBS Films makes a show, which they do make the CSI shows, and then they can sell it all around the world. So they make money selling it everywhere, France, Italy, Australia, like everywhere. So. Warner Brothers was making all the money selling it around the world. So it just wasn't super profitable for CBS. And, you know, then you have what the actual fan campaign itself is about, which the fans don't care about any of that. They, they, they don't care. You can't say, like, to them, well, you have to understand the money. Fans are like, what? We don't care about that. Yeah. We want more of these characters, more of these stories. And what they did with Person of Interest is they had a very, very popular lesbian relationship. Very popular. I mean, just thousands and thousands of tweets deep every week once mm-hmm. they introduce this root shaw relationship you know one character was root one was shaw they give them a a, a ship name shoot right <laughs> so they're tuning in they're bringing in this whole new audience to watch the show and that sort of became what this fan was trying to save it for she was trying to save her identity on air and that's a big thing when you see yourself if you're a marginalized person and you see yourself on screen which you almost never see that was a huge thing for Kaylee. So I was really a real exciting reason to follow somebody who saw them represented. But 
same with Chuck. The guy says, I was a nerd. I'm a nerd by nature. He liked Chuck, and Chuck was a nerd. Like, everybody watches, loves a show, feels an identity towards it. The same with Star Trek. They were space nerds. You yes. know, there's this space nerdy show. So yeah, it makes sense. You wrapped up with Star Trek, and I want to just go back to that because the you have the old couple in there who saved Star Trek, and they kind of they started this whole like campaign to save she- TV shows and stuff like this. And I, the genesis of this is really interesting. So kind of introduce the the couple and kind of what they did to save Star Trek. Yeah, it's B. Joe, Betty Joe, and she shortened her own name and called herself B. Joe because. You know, sounds sci-fi, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and John, and they were a married, very nerdy couple. Like yeah. they were just like love their sci-fi. They were involved in the sci-fi conferences from like sixties, nineteen sixty, I think, maybe even early fifty-nine. And you know, Star Trek came around. People were were really hungry for an adult sci-fi show, not not Danger Will Robinson, which is crazy because we're two days from like Lost in Space coming back to Netflix. Yeah. But it's like they were like. That was supposed to be an adult show, and then they really focused on the kid, you know. And people are complaining about that again, actually, with the new show, that they really focus on the kid. And they, you know, so they were hoping for an adult sci-fi show, and the networks kept promising them, like, we're going to give you this. Because they knew that sci-fi people were pretty devout, you Mm -hmm. know. And so they met uh, Gene Roddenberry just a few weeks, two weeks before Star Trek actually premiered. He wanted to, he went to, like, a big sci-fi conference uh, called Tricon, which was in Cleveland in 1966. And they were running a fashion show at the this conference, like space themed, you know, so people come with like tinfoil on their heads and like, I am Groot. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, not Groot, because obviously he's something else. But yes. it's like uh, they had their own things going on. And then they were like, I don't know who this guy is. We're not going to put his costumes in the show. He's like, please put our costumes in the show. Like, we're really trying to introduce this to you. And we're going to and then they showed them the next day, actually, the pilot and the next episode. So that was sort of a big thing to get to meet him there. And he convinced them to put the costumes in the show. And then a weeks later, when it became it came on air, they started to really love it. And Gene was so thankful to the couple. He said, look, if you find yourselves in Hollywood, come and visit set. He really knew that he wanted to foster relationships with these groups that were already an audience for him. He knew, like, show it to these people. They will love it. And make sure I'm good and kind to them because they will be good and kind by watching my show, you know, if, I, if we're delivering. Because he was also bringing in, like, sci-fi writers to write his show. It was a very different way of doing it. He wasn't writing these himself. He was really the, the executive producer. He was working with big sci-fi writers of the day to come up with these incredible scripts and paying them on spec. Like t- it's just an incredible story behind how Star Trek was made. Which is completely different from a lot of the shows that were up to that point, like The Fugitive or whatever that was on the air, which is where like it would just run for a certain number of seasons and then it would get canceled and everyone would just kind of go on their way. Yep. Right? But, you know, that's it. It's That's a show, The Fugitive, was serialized, right? He's trying to get that. So that really hooked people. But it was the able to run. Man. Yeah, it was a one Yeah, it was able to run long enough, you know, because it just had that audience base sort of built in. Star Trek wasn't. It, it sort of had to be saved by sci-fi writers the first season. Like, the, the Trimbles didn't do their big, huge letter-writing campaign until the second season. The first season, though, was in trouble even then. And it took, like, people who were sci-fi writers to sort of write in and say, no, no, please do it. And NBC says, oh, we were never really going to cancel it, but it's good to know. So they brought it back for a second season. And the Trimbles were so used to going to set, and they were there for the filming of The Deadly Years, and everyone was in the dumps, and... They could see there was a problem, and they talked to somebody on set. Is like, yeah, we're, it looks like we're going to be canceled, and that's when they, they, it was a '67. I mean, the '67. You look up historically what was going on in the world. There was a lot of protest going on, and they, their protest of the time was like, let's save this show. Let's let's bring this political activism that was everywhere, 
everywhere at the time to saving a television show. And they rallied the troops. You know what the rules that are still, they still make their way around the internet, like what B. Joe's rules for saving a show are. So that's what I think is so incredible is that it's sort of the grandfather of all these campaigns. And they're so famous for it that they still travel the world as the couple that saved Star Trek. You know, almost everybody else in my movie is not necessarily known for what they did. They, that's not why they did it. And it wasn't why the Trimbles did it either. It wasn't for them to be known. They just wanted more episodes of Star Trek. But that show just got this other life. This, like, Star Trek is the most famous TV show to ever be on the air. Like, and people know, like, I Love Lucy. You know, people know, like, Family Ties. I mean, these are big shows and cheers that people talk about. But there isn't, like, conferences in, like, multiple languages in multiple countries all over every weekend for anything else except Star Trek. And if it wasn't for these two people helping to save it, we would never have that. They're mm. responsible for that. You see not just the, the cons, but like Star Trek and our society, like our cell phones and things like that, certain technology, certain ideas that like we're all adapted or either influenced by the show. Yeah. And Star Trek, out of like a lot of the shows, like you mentioned, like Person of Interest and things like that, Star Trek is an institution, right? It's, yep. it's caught show after show after show, and uh, it's got movie after movie after movie. Yeah. And then that just doesn't even cover, like, the books. That's another whole cottage industry. So, And it's weird that it was just on the bubble. It's amazing. A lot of the shows in this movie were shows that would not have lasted if the fans didn't fight for it. Cagney and Lacey going to be gone after really its first sort of season that had its big cast. And Cagney and Lacey's coming back this fall. CBS is relaunching Cagney and Lacey. Roswell wasn't a big hit. They're doing a new Roswell. You know, that's another one that's in this film. There was another one they announced just Mad About You. Mad About You took letter writing campaigns to serve people to like support it and keep on air and things like that. It's really some of these shows, they just take time to nurture. They have a really great creative team or one person that's like the incredible showrunner behind it. And they need to find their feet, you know, and it's a lot to pump out a TV show, like 22 episodes a year. That's like an hour or half hour of TV every couple of weeks. I've been working on this movie for two years and I'm like, ah, I'm not even done yet. You know, yeah. like it's, I just can't imagine how you can have this quality, but then to have that quality enough that people dig their teeth into it in a way that they're not digging their teeth into all the other stuff that's being thrown at them. You know, these shows are, they're culty-ish, like they're kind of culty, but they cross over into something bigger over time. And it's good thing these fans fought for it because otherwise, they just wouldn't be known. Star Trek, it's, it's incredible to think. Star Trek would just not be a known show. There's hundreds of shows from the 60s that were one season or two seasons and you just never heard of them. You just, we just don't talk about them. You know, the same way we don't talk about bad movies that didn't make any money from that era. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like we yeah. don't talk about those, but we talk about all the biggies. It's, it's incredible that, that it wasn't a sure thing. That Star Trek wasn't a sure thing. It's so crazy. It is a crazy thing. Did working on the documentary teach you anything about, like, transparency? Like, like you mentioned from Star Trek, which is in the 60s, right up to, like, Roswell, Mad About You. Is there a better sense now of studios and channels understanding what are the magic numbers where they can make money and viewership? No. Like It's changed it, so much. Yeah. yeah I mean, but it mo- also seems so arbitrary, too, though. Yes. I mean, look, sometimes it's prestige that'll keep something on the air. I uh, read an article recently about uh, the person behind uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It gets no numbers for them, but it's so well-liked. They want that prestige. And St. Elsewhere was the same way. St. Elsewhere was a show that it was the people that ran the network 
would sit down and watch it at home with their significant others, and they're like, this is a show we watch. We're not going to cancel this show. When it was 99 out of 100 shows on like the ratings, like it was just so badly done. And again, that took fans' support for people to catch on. And St. Elsewhere is like this incredible show. And it's it honestly, if you go through the list of the shows that people fought for, like Homicide Life on the Streets, like David Simon, you know, The Wire, like this guy is like considered the greatest showrunner of, of one of the best showrunners of all time. And it's like his first show was kind of in trouble, too. It just when you have something truly groundbreaking, it's really hard for a general audience to, to kind of get. And it really takes that sort of core group to like get in there really love it start to suggest it it's like the way people got into breaking bad in a way where people are like look i know he's the father from malcolm in the middle you don't <laughs> expect him to be this but you know it took like a couple seasons sometimes for these things to be recommended and then you're like how did i not watch that and and it's all of these shows like you could go through all of the shows that this is in this movie they all went through that every one does also continuity play a difference in this because you mentioned like kind of the culty shows there is much more of a kind of a continuity or kind of a, they're more serialized or there's more connected like threads and plot lines and stuff like that like star trek does that kind of make a barrier because you can watch big bang theory you can watch any episode anytime watch it you get your 20 30 minutes of jokes nerds and then you just go on your way you don't have to sit and yeah. work through it but sometimes star trek or some of the other shows like you mentioned Roswell built up on a number of different themes and stuff. Breaking Bad to go all the way to the end yep. to wrap everything up properly. Yep. So is that just a lot of work on the audience's part and they just sometimes just don't want to invest that time, you think? or is Yes, just that's exactly it. And Lost was a big gamble for networks to say we're going to do something very serialized like that. And, and for a network to be like, uh-oh, people missed an episode and then just watch. You know, like you have to be very careful when you have something that heavily serialized 24 like they were very very big about like every week we're going to be returning so that's why they didn't even take a week off they always say like we're doing 24 straight weeks so you weren't looking for it on the schedule and they like flexibility networks on their schedule they like to know they don't care which 25 million people watch csi or modern family they just know that around 20 to 25 million people will, will tune in and the people watching the show they'll be like eh, i was out that night I'll catch it another time. I'll catch it when it's on at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. on whatever other network it's on two years down the road. It doesn't kill them to miss it, you know. So there's something to be said for an advertiser to be like, yeah, yeah, that's that's good enough. But if you really want loyalty for a brand, you can really sort of attach yourself to something that has a very dedicated group. And then those people might be very dedicated to your product, you know. And I think you saw that in the Chuck campaign where they targeted Subway subs. They Subway was like... In the show, people were eating Subway, and the fans recognized it. And when Chuck was going to be canceled, like, target Subway. Let's target Subway. Let's show them we support Subway for supporting the show. And it, that Subway made a deal with NBC to sort of up their sponsorship agreement. And so now everybody in the back, I think even one of the characters started to work at Subway. I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, they really, like, went there. And the fans of the show don't care. They actually don't care about that. They're just like, just keep bringing us those characters. Let's like see the relationship develop between Chuck. And, you know, it's like they wanted these things. So I think fans of these sort of shows have to teach other viewers to really get into something. But all that changed with streaming services that want that. Like Netflix wants that. You know, they want serialized. And even smaller networks, they want FX really wants that. And so people have started to look at TV very, very differently than they did even 10 years ago because they want to be involved almost like it's one movie. Like they, they think of it as one movie. I've just read Jason, today, Jason Bateman talking about the next season of Ozark. And he's like, we're actually calling it instead of Ozark season two, Ozark the sequel, mm -hmm. because it's going to be a 10 episodes that's just a movie broken into 10 hours. 
Yeah. I mean, you even see that now with commercials for TV shows, right? Just like set your PVR. So they're yeah. not even expecting you to watch it at Thursday at 8 p.m. or whatever. Just set the VCR, basically, yeah. and then just like get around to it. Which then also brings up the other thing, going back to Star Trek, some of the other culty shows, then I'm like wondering then how how long it takes now for the um, kind of like the memes, the language, the uh, the shorthand, the jokes, and all the things that we kind of pick up from these shows, yeah. how that filters in if everybody's watching it at different parts or binge watching it and stuff like that. Like It's killing it. It's actually killing water. Water cooler shows are so important. Even the way I watch Stranger Things. My friends said, hey, we should watch Stranger Things. And I would say to them, you should watch Stranger Things. But we don't talk about the individual episodes. We just don't. We just say we generally like Stranger Things. We don't know when they're watching it. We don't know if they're catching up to it. There's a, it's, it's just very different. I mean, I was when the Marvel shows first started hitting Netflix, it was like, okay, I would meet my friend Dave and we'd go to his place and we'd watch like the first four episodes of Luke Cage and then keep up with each other a little. And now it's as much as we love them and we still love them. It's like, are you finished Jessica Jones season two yet? No, I'm about a few in. It's like, it's just different versus that weekly sort of consensus uh, where you'd get together and, and talk about it. And that's, that's really missing, you know, and Game of Thrones provides that still. You know, you get that from the bigger shows, and you certainly got that right through the end of Breaking Bad. You know, people were, like, in their living rooms pacing, talking at the screen, you know. <laughs> and I think that's that's kind of a bummer, but it doesn't mean there aren't going to be fan campaigns for streaming shows. They still get devout, especially when they represent a community strongly, like Sense8 did for the LGBTQ community. Those 500,000 tweets and signatures got, you know, Netflix. It was like, to give it a two-hour wrap-up, you know, about the Rachowski siblings back together to say, like, you got to wrap this up. You can't leave fans hanging. Fans are way too savvy these days to leave hanging. And so that's something that I think networks are like, okay, we're going to serialize it. And if the, if it doesn't make financial sense, we got to let make sure that the showrunners know and not leave people hanging because that's when fans will explode. Does this revival trend, uh, we're going further away from your documentary, but now this revival trend, though, where, like you mentioned, Mad About You, Roseanne came back to big ratings and big success. Uh, we had Fuller House, Gilmore Girls, all these shows. X-Files. Yeah, X-Files. Yeah, yeah. X-Files didn't really need to come back, though. Yeah. I was kind of disappointed with that. I had one great episode this this year, too, when they did the whole alternate universe sort of thing. That was a great episode. There was a great yeah. episode, but for the most part, I'm like, I kind of yeah. let the, the magic's gone a little bit. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like when you get together with the ex-girlfriend, and you're like, yeah, I wonder if there's anything still here. <laughs> no, there's nothing here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so does the revival then uh, also kind of neutralize that? Because it's just like... Now you're almost getting kind of spoiled in a sense where like, uh, I mean, like, yeah, these shows kind of wrap up, but then, you know, they're valuable, quote unquote, valuable properties. And then just somewhere down the line, somebody like Cagney mm -hmm. and Lacey's coming back. Who would have thought that was like a val quote unquote valuable property? X-Files makes sense. Full House makes sense. Yeah. But I was like, Cagney and Lacey, I'm like, all right, let's go down this road and let's see. It was so, it was so groundbreaking. I mean, Cagney and Lacey was so groundbreaking. They're two lady cops, right? And they're like not talking every single second about their relationships. They're taking perps heads and slapping them off the hoods of the cars and cuffing <laughs> them. They're tackling people in alleyways. They're pulling up their guns. They, women at that time had just, they'd just never seen that. You know, it's, it was just incredible. And the woman in our film, Dorothy Swanson, who saved that show, who like made it her life's mission to save that show. She's a, a housewife and school teacher in Michigan. And she just watched that show with like saucer eyes, like, oh my God, I can't believe it changed her whole life. It gave her 
personal power. She changed, I mean, she left her husband. She formed an advocacy group to save all sorts of TV shows and other, other big shows for, for women, like Designing Women, you know, like other important shows that I won't be surprised if we see Designing Women reboot, you know? Yeah. And Cagney and Lacey, in this era, the Me Too era, to have a very independent, female-driven cop show, and I think they announced, too, that the Bad Boys sequel show that's coming with Gabriel Union is just essentially another Cagney and Lacey in a way, too. It's a female cop show. They're, you're, I think it's great, but networks are desperate. They're desperate for viewers. So you can say, like, Will and Grace, okay, there's a certain group of people that are going to watch this to a certain number for sure. And if we bring back a little bit more than that, if it has more than just a nostalgia value. But there's no desperate even if it just has nostalgia value. Like, Roseanne was a big hit week one, but it, it's it's calmed down. It's not those ratings. People tuned in and then are, are going to settle into a decent enough amount for a studio to make it worthwhile. I, I get it, but it's like the desperation for them to find viewers because they, they were used to tens of millions of people watching their shows. You know, when Person of Interest was canceled, I mean, they were burning off the show in the summer and it was seven and a half million. They kill for a seven and a half million yeah. people to watch a show. Like that's that's like a lot. They They can't keep up with the way it keeps changing. They just can't keep up with it, you know? And so you need sort of gimmicks to make sure people watch these shows. So if you do 10 episode seasons, which is a really big lure for older actors like, you know, Will and Grace and, you know, it's like Paul Reiser. He's in his 60s now, 64, right? So it's a lot to do 22 episode seasons. So you can bring them back to do a 10 or 12. That streaming has really changed the length of what a season can be. And so you're getting these event series and that's why you got X-Files because they were never gonna commit to 22 episodes, six here, another six, you know, down the line. So. It's just a With different all the way. running and jumping too, right? Like, oh, yeah. An action show? <laughs> yeah. Because oh. it's an FBI show, right? So you yeah. gotta... That's why you can't bring back the original Cagney and Lacey. They're not going to be like putting perps down the hoods of cars because they'd be captain by now, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. Sharon Glass and Tyne Daly. There's no way they're like pulling out their guns still. They would be Cagney and Lacey. They'd be behind desks and be decorated <laughs> and retired. Actually, no, they'd be retired officers. They wouldn't even be on the force anymore. So you, you had to recast that group, you know? But you mentioned uh, a woman being fired by Cagney and Lacey because her story, too, is really interesting in, in the documentary where she yeah. literally got paid to save shows. That was her job. So can you just get into that? That's really that's yeah. bizarre. It's its own movie in a way. And we certainly know that the story of Dorothy Swanson, it's like in this film, we've got the couple that save Star Trek. We've got Kaylee trying to save Person of Interest. And we tell like the Longmire story and the Jericho story. We tell these one off sort of stories. And Dorothy, early on in the movie, you see her story of helping save Cagney and Lacey. And it's so funny that we did some test screenings as we're editing to, like, you know, get the film into shape. And then Dorothy sort of comes back into the movie and she's like, oh, that lady, she's back. Wonder what she's talking about. You know, mm -hmm. And she's talking about, oh, and then I saw this woman was like trying to save St. Elsewhere. So I said, hey, why don't we form an organization? And then she comes back again in the movie. And then she's like, oh, so this organization, we had a newsletter. And then we thought maybe we'll try and save other shows. And then you get into the story of saving Designing Women. You're like, Oh, that was nice. So she saved Designing Women, too. Then she comes back into the movie, and she's <laughs> like, oh, and then we saved all of these shows. And we got so much press, and we started to charge for our membership. And that membership dollars, as the articles got you know, out there into bigger and bigger papers, I was able to draw a salary. And so she was saving shows for a living. And that's what's so crazy about her story, that she went from, in a very short period of time, like uh, 82, 83 was the campaign to save... Cagney and Lacey by 
88, 89. She's in Hollywood doing a yearly conference and award show with all of the biggest stars in Hollywood. I mean, this was like the Golden Globes before the Golden Globes. This was like Comic-Con before Comic-Con. They had conferences and would bring in all of the stars. Like when Seinfeld came on, Seinfeld was coming to the thing. Frasier was there. Everybody who was anybody came to their conferences because there was nothing else like it. And this, this just came from somebody who just loved TV so much. that, And really, I think it was like a book club for, for TV. There was no critical thinking about like TV from viewers really back then. It was TV critics, but there was no internet. There was no television without pity, which was a very big early website where people were writing very in-depth reviews about television shows. This was, they wanted to get together and just talk about TV the way they would talk about any book that they love, like To Kill a Mockingbird. So they would sit and be mm -hmm. like, oh, what makes this show so great? And they're a, they were a huge force. I mean, VQT, Dorothy was like invited into presidents of networks offices and they would say, so this is what we're thinking for the fall season. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do you think? Do you think your group might like that? Like, I don't know, maybe, you know? <laughs> and so even though she wasn't picking and developing the shows, she had that sort of power in a way. It's crazy because there was no internet. There was no way to gauge what people are doing. So you had this one group that was like thousands of members deep. And so that was good enough for the network presidents to be like, well, I'm, I'm going to see what, what the word on the street is before there's a word on the street to be had, you know? Mm -hmm. Picking up on that thread though, like we touched upon the internet and uh, Twitter and things like that. Does the tweets and stuff kind of factor in now in, in their decisions, the studio's decisions and the channel's decisions of what to keep? Or like, are they happy? Like if a show airs, like X-Files, like there was a lot of people tweeting during the X-Files episodes and like even... It's huge. Uh, Live right? tweeting is huge. And they watch it intensely. The engagement. Literally a character who they don't like, they can see fans don't like. Four episodes later, if that episode's still in production, that person leaves the show, doesn't have as many lines. They go in the edit suite and say, cut that person back. And, and showrunners are like, okay, look, we'll take some creative notes and we'll certainly keep an eye on what the fans are thinking. But it's like, if you let fans sort of decide the content, like Stark's head never gets lopped off. You know, like fans will make very vanilla decisions. You know, it'll be like, I want everyone to be happy and everyone to be alive. Mm -hmm. And then they'll be like, this show's kind of boring. It's yeah. Like, yeah, because you decided. That's just what you're going to do. You're going to pick, like in life, how you made very safe life decisions. You'll make very safe life, safe life decisions for these characters. And, you know, you, you see the way these live tweets work, and tweets work, and the networks are just way, almost too tuned into it. But those tweets are going to save shows, and they have saved shows. And that's really what the fall of Dorothy and VQT was, was the internet. It's... She wanted a group of people to generally like all good quality television, viewers for quality television. We generally like the best in television. So we'll work as a group to save any show that we deem to be quality. So even if you don't love, love, love a show, you'll still write a letter to save it because you've, you've bought into the whole idea of this group. And then the Internet came along and you're like, oh, wait. I just like Jericho, so I'm going to go cbs.com backslash Jericho, and I'm going to just meet in the boards there. But the networks didn't know, like, what are these boards? How do they work? Are they a, a meeting? It was sort of like they built the catacombs, uh, you know, underneath the Colosseum, and the Christians were <laughs> meeting there. And they were like, ah, we've made an assembly area for our fans, so now if we do something unpopular, like, they're attacking us from our own structure. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's crazy what happens. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the one of the themes that's kind of cool in your documentary is this idea of community. And you talked about like people watching 
person of interest, for example, and just seeing that lesbian couple or those two girls interact, the two female characters interact, and just kind of hooking their identity into it. And Star Trek is a very big thing too, right? Huge but, identity. I mean, he that was his big thing. I want a Russian on here because Russians are involved in that. I mean, he was like, I want like a black woman on here. I want an Asian person on here. I mean, he was very, very specific about casting that show to show. The world survived the nuclear scare because that's 1966, right? Like the whole world's going to explode any day now because of like the the Red Scare. And that's like, I want to show we overcame the Red Scare. We're friends with the Russians now. Earth and humanity is that. And even the missions we're doing out in space are not there to go blow up aliens. Like this scary alien is the mom of like this baby. Like they, it's just like they, that's what's so great about Star Trek. You're just at the end of every episode, you're like, I feel hopeful. Yeah. (laughs) I feel hopeful. And that was like a very, very big thing. And not just fans in the documentary, but you have like Uhura from Star Trek, yep. who many people would recognize. You had uh, Scott Bakula from Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap was one of the shows too. Where Isn't like, great? if I could have saved that one, that was because it was just getting good. They had the evil leapers at the yeah. end of the. Uh, started to get more serialized there too. Yeah, they really had it. Yeah, he was amazing to meet him, and then Donald Belisario, the who was the creator of that show. That guy cranked them out too. Oh, Magnum PI was coming back magnum yeah. pi right like this is like and he supposedly wrote a, a quantum leap movie and quantum leap's going to be a feature film now wow. too like everything from that era you're just like these are these cult shows and those are the ones that are always on the tip of your tongue you're like why is cagney and lacy coming back it's like do you know the name cagney and lacy yeah i know the name that's why because it's brand recognition that just it, it most of these shows that get saved they get another season that's all star trek got was one sort of season you know jericho didn't got, came back incredible came back you know not many of them like chuck got multiple seasons because they had that sponsorship deal you mm-hmm. know cagney lacy ended up be winning like every award like the emmys there's a show uh, that actually in its year was canceled won like the emmy for best actress for like tyne daly and they're like uh we're canceling a show that won best actress and so they that's incredible that for the most part these shows don't come back for a long period of time but that fan campaign itself sort of sparks greater interest from people that weren't necessarily watching it. And then when it hits syndication, these shows usually take off in, in a big, big way. So the documentary is going to have the world premiere April 28th at Hot Docs. Yeah, and Dorothy's coming up. Like, oh, she's, she? So Dorothy has been retired since 2000. She retired very quietly, you know, left the business like just like, OK, well, I'm closing up shop and closed VQT. And she's calling this her last hurrah. She's like coming up to Toronto. She's like, I've never been. I'm so excited. And uh, her second in command, who's in the movie as well, it was her VP, Pat, is coming up. And they're going to be here. And Kaylee's coming up from California for the premiere. And we have the the Oakville counselor, who is a big fighter for Jericho. And the Oakville, Ontario counselor, <laughs> who, like city counselor, is like what fought really hard for Jericho. Uh, and he's coming out as well. And maybe even a few really big special guests that are in the movie are going to be there. So I'm very excited. So the 28th is the premiere, and then two more screenings, April 30th, my birthday, at 3 p.m. Happy and, birthday. Uh, thank you. And then May 3rd at 12.15 p.m. This is, this is, I'm very excited for this. Eventually, like you said, this could be like a TV show or a doc series. Are you hoping then eventually to kind of adapt this, or are you going to kind of just kind of let this project kind of sit and then just go on to something else? No, I'm, I'm going to try and nurture this. I think that this is something that will play well at cons like i'm going to take this run to like comic cons um you know it's it's even filmed in parts at WonderCon, and there's definitely a lot of mention of comic con in it because that's just such a big cultural force now for television uh and i really want to show this to fans and bring it out there to fans and just i i hope people whose shows aren't represented or who don't get the 20 minute treatment in this can watch this movie and say you know what this wasn't specifically my show but i'm this person i'm this person who wants to has forms a community 
around the shows that I love that has like a real strong way of identifying with the characters on TV. And that's like really the surprise, I think, for people. They go in and be like, I really love Chuck, so I'm going to come in and I'm going to watch it just for the Chuck thing and I'm going to see how that goes. And then afterwards, I hope they're like you. They're, they're like, Dorothy Swanson, that's crazy. Like, it's like, you might not necessarily love Cagney and Lacey or Designing Women or any of the shows, but her story is just just a great story. So I'm, I'm hoping that that sort of is something that I can nurture. And then maybe when it gets to like a streaming service where you could like click to play the movie or you could play like the extended person of interest story, the extended Veronica Mars story, the extended Chuck story. So that's what I'm hoping is like, yeah, I got to see this tighter version of it in the film that covered it all. But if you're really just interested in Longmire, we can give you the big Longmire story and get more into the business side of things. Because I really, again, stuck with, for the most part, the emotional side of why do people fight for shows? And I really wanted people to walk away from this to really think to themselves the way they connect with art, the way they identify with art, why something is important to them and what they might do. And just that democracy in action is just kind of awesome. You know, like, mm -hmm. it's like, oh my God, a Fortune 500 company that's like, I could never think I would be able to change the minds of executives at a major network. These people were, they didn't think that either. Yeah. They just like, were not willing to let it go. When you see somebody like Dorothy too, who's kind of like bossing around the companies, like you said, like, She's Crazy. saying show after show after show. I'm like, wow, woman's really powerful. Like, there's no, I mean, you even had that clip in there where she was in one of the, was it Inter Entertainment Weekly or something? Like, the Power 100 and, like, Oprah's on this list and Seinfeld's on this list. She was higher than Denzel Washington on that list. <laughs> like, she's like, <laughs> Denzel Washington was 91 to, like, 82. She was like, and, you know, look, I really try to paint Dorothy in a good light, but Dorothy became power hungry a little bit, you know? And in a good way. She's like, we're the viewers. We have a voice. And when she got onto this Entertainment Weekly, like the power 101 most powerful people in a Hollywood list, and she's on it, like there's a, she even says in the documentary, I wish, you know, like she, <laughs> she wouldn't mind. The viewers, I think most, most viewers, and then I think they even do polls like that every year. It's like, if you were the network president, what show would you cancel? What shows would you keep sort of thing? And, but she did that. She sort of like became that. You know, it's so funny. People talk about passive viewers. People, that's like, that's just a term people talk about television. It's like, these were anything but passive viewers. And I think that, I think if people see this film, it, it could do that rallying cry for the show that they love. They're like, okay, now I kind of know how you're supposed to. Because I think the reason a lot of people don't do many things in life is, well, how would I even start going about it? You know, and that's like, this movie can maybe be that template for like, okay, let me get that Star Trek to do and to not do list. You could follow that list written in 1967 today. That's exactly how you're going to get your show back today. It's incredible the way that still stays. It's not snail mail. You're not going to be necessarily sending like letters to the post office. But those rules still apply for how you approach a network to get your show back. That was what I found really interesting was the, the evolution from Saving Star Trek, which is snail mail, right up to like uh, Saving Person of Interest, but with like a petition online and things like that, like yeah. using more and more of the tools and like you kind of see the evolution of yeah. how we kind of go about doing this. And then crowdfunding now, right? Like the Veronica Mars story is about, yeah. that's the other thing. I mean, how could fans be at its most powerful? Okay, well, we can really pester in a polite way a network to hope that they will pick it up again or a new st a streaming service like Netflix will be like, okay, the viewers of Longmire, we don't really have this over 35 group or over 65 group, certainly, you know, uh, on, on our sort of streaming service yet. Maybe this will bring a bunch of these people over. Sure, that's one way. But then the way fans really have the power, here is the money, make us more. 
you know, and that is what Veronica Mars did. That's what Mystery Science Theater 3000 did in, in a television way. Like they did episodes. They said each episode will cost us like I think 300,000 to make. So however much we raise, we will make that many episodes. That's incredible. So now when you as fans, they, they take that to heart and they can be like, all right, well, if we have four, six million viewers and you outright want to see more episodes of Chuck or person of interest. And I, and I asked that it's not necessarily uh, in the doc, but I did ask that to all of the showrunners where it's like, look, person of interest, CBS canceled it. It's not coming back. Would you consider ever doing a, a campaign later where fans just pay for the person of interest movie? And they're, they're sort of like, well, I guess you no know, Kickstarter is really not meant for us. Like we have enough money to do that, but it's tempting. I mean, it's just tempting really to say like, we have the story to tell. And if you pre buy tickets in a way, to your movie, will you make us this movie? That's that's a tempting way for fans to sort of have all the power. The problem is you still have to rely on the showrunner to have the creative vision to do it. Just because a fan has funded the Veronica Mars movie, the fans don't write the Veronica Mars movie. You know? Yeah, that's why they're the professional and you're just like... Exactly, and you gotta be okay with it. You can't be like, but I bought a $750 ticket to the premiere. And like, I'm sure there were people who bought tickets that like, put the most into the Veronica Mars like Kickstarter campaign. And maybe it wasn't their favorite film. And you're like, like if I spend $750, it better be my favorite <laughs> film. <Yeah. laughs> you know, like I haven't spent $750 to go see a Star Wars movie, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like a whole different ball game now with streaming, with social media, and then certainly with crowdfunding in a way that fans have the ultimate amount of power to to bring something back in in ways that weren't there before. But just because the way of delivering the message changed, it hasn't really changed sort of the methods in a way. Yeah, they can't be power hungry, kind of go back to what you're saying with Dorothy in a sense. Yeah, yeah. The other thing too is the, the fans don't always know. There's a couple of um, things that the, the writer's room, they have certain things plotted out, certain reveals, certain mysteries, certain depending on the type of show that they're working on. Yeah. Right? And so you don't have all that information to know what the... And you're never going to vote for your favorite character to be killed off. But sometimes that's the best medicine for you. You know, yeah. like that's like... There's something about a big death on a on a show and knowing you're going to like upset a bunch of people. And you you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to, to have your vision be like fully your vision right there for people to appreciate or not appreciate. What the person of interest story brings up is sometimes the, this vision can play out in a bigger sense that in a in a real world scenario that maybe you're not aware of that, you know, that when you kill off a lesbian character and there's, they have so little representation and then they have a one in three chance of actually being killed. If they, it's like, Oh good. A lesbian character on TV that represents me. I feel, Oh no, she's dead. You know, like <laughs> it's like, like, but of course she's dead. She had a 30% chance of dying according to every statistic of every lesbian character has ever been on television. I really was surprised by that. I was surprised by how, how many lesbian characters have been killed off and the way that that community feels about that and how they were willing to fight for their right to live. And it's something that Kaylee says in the movie. She says, you don't get to see that very often on CBS when she's talking about the first kiss that they had on the show. And that's really important. I don't think you can say that it's like, yeah, I, I see lesbian relationships on TV. It's not so new. You know, there was on this show and that show and that. But for the most part, they're not network TV. And that really makes sense of why Will and Grace is like so important to the LGBTQ community. It's like that's a network TV show. And they're happy endings to their lives. You know, they're they're not being killed. Like if Will gets shot to death, that'll be a huge shock to Will yes. and Grace. I'll be like, that's not a very dangerous world, the Will and Grace thing. You know, right. it's like and but a lot of these other shows where you'd be like, oh, I think we can bring in this great audience 
audience group who really likes the sort of sci-fi and very serialized drama. So we'll make these characters, you know, build this lesbian relationship in, this gay relationship in. But you got to be really careful that it's like, especially in the wake of things like Pulse nightclub shootings where people are actually being killed, that you can't have the, the being killed on your show all the time. And again, you then can't have showrunners scared to kill a gay character on a show. You don't want to be like, even an audience member, you don't want that. You don't want to be like, oh, they made this character gay. He'll never die. You know, he'll yeah. never die because they're scared to kill a gay character on the show. Like that's because the audience will be like, okay, kill some gay people. You know, yeah. like it's like, oh, I can't believe we're saying that. We're yeah. gay. Like it's such a delicate line, but it's just about understanding what's out there, these tropes that are out there, betraying these tropes or just giving really, really great reasons why that's important that this character goes and make it heroic. Don't have them killed by a stray bullet and trying to defend a straight person, which became another part of this trope. It's, I just learned so much about the way people view television, especially marginalized people view television and why they fight so hard for shows. To really understand what Dorothy did is to really understand where women were in 1982 in the representation on television. To understand what Kaylee is doing is to really understand the LGBT community in 2016-17 with the way they're being killed on television. And that's that's what this movie is really about. You know, It's about the community of people that really intensely love something, coupled with the fact that the stories are awesome. The characters are awesome. And everyone should be watching these awesome shows that break barriers. Like right now, there's this whole controversy uh, with The Simpsons and Apu. And yes. But yeah. I also know Indian people, brown people who really like the character, right? Because yeah. he makes fun of the stereotype. And it's like yeah. they support him fully. They're, they kind of relate and they it cracks them up. And and then there's another group of people who just like, this is racist. This is awful. This is like, and it, it's what you're saying before with like, people do have a lot of power and they're kind of like can tweet out all those kind of things. But at the same time, the the showrunners, they have their own like agenda and they're trying to fulfill a bunch of things, whatever. And this is another, Simpsons is an institution too. It's been around for 30 years. Yeah. So exactly. it's lasted generation after generation, political correctness after political correctness. Like, yeah. So it's kind of almost like above the law now in a sense. Yeah. And you know, they're going to always have that when you're going to try and break barriers by having characters have sort of stereotypical ways of being it's so funny is that you'll within groups you'll be like oh jewish people are like uh that's sort of like stereotypical way and then they'll be like yeah but we love it you know and it's like i see that all the time in stuff where it's like ah i don't necessarily want to see all jewish people come off as nebishi or this or that but i laugh so hard at all of those jokes you know and then you're like well who's telling the joke is it a jewish person telling the joke or they had to tell the joke it's like and then you're like i don't want to think like that did i laugh did I laugh? Like, that's often how I'm going to judge if something works. And if it's something that I'm laughing at that I really have to, like, then think, like, why am I laughing? Am I laughing in a way because I'm racist and I'm supporting racism? Or it's just because it's just funny? And I don't know. I think there it's the Internet gives a voice to uh, majorities and minorities. And it can be a really incredible way to democratize everything. It can also be a very dangerous thing to listen to. You're just like, you could be like, wow, look at all these people that are like pro-gun. Maybe I'm wrong. It's like, wait a minute. No, no. Statistically, I know that's actually a very small group, yeah. you know, like. But they're I, very loud. They're very loud. You know, I remember there was that Time Magazine article a couple weeks ago with like the survivors of the shooting. And there was like six of them, I think, of the kids on the cover of Time Magazine. And the conservative groups were very upset. And they're like, they should be putting that one student on that's pro-gun who doesn't actually believe in all that. And I remember that coming up first. Well, first of all, the it's an editorial. They can put whoever they want. <laughs> like you, you can't say it. But 
I actually don't disagree with you, but let's actually show that person in comparison to the people that are anti-gun. He's not one in seven, you know? So let's have a, a aerial shot from <laughs> like a drone, yeah. have that student standing on that side of the schoolyard, have the other 1,200 students over there and be like, this one student is pro-gun. Yes. You know, that's the problem is you start to be like, wait, is a majority of the people against Apu being like this way? It's, it's hard to gauge that when everything's given equal voice. And so you'll read like, oh, I read 10 tweets. That's why I don't even like people on the street interviews on the news when they'd be like, well, what do you think about uh, Trump's proposals? And they'll be there all day long. And they'll be like, oh, 99 people have like terrible things. And this, like, and this one person's like, I think he's doing a fine job. So this is what people on the street said. They give two positives. <laughs> and the one day it's like, what? That's not representative of what you're seeing out there. And I just think it's like, these news stories and the way people respond to the things they see on television, it's very gut reaction. And so Twitter gives you a very gut reaction feeling to the characters you're seeing on TV, the stories you're seeing all the time. And it's about people at the top weighing all of this and really making sure they're not making everything kind of bland for everybody because it's going to upset a couple of people here and there. Speaking of Twitter, where can people find you or the documentary online? United We Fan Doc on Facebook, United We Fan Doc on Instagram, United We Fan Doc on Twitter. And it's been this really amazing thing to assemble all the fandoms. It's really cool to see, like, who are the most sort of active fandoms still? It's crazy, but so far it's the Longmire group. The, the, the group that you would figure would be like, okay, well, they taught all these, like, older people to use the internet to save their show to a streaming service. Like, Longmire, this, like, show that it, there isn't just a lot of material out there for older people and when they wanted their show back they fought on the internet but they have stayed connected online i put like one thing out for the longmire people and you know you get that reach it tells you what your reach is on something mm -hmm. it's over twenty six thousand people <laughs> is my reach on longmire and then i've got something for jericho i'm like well they use the internet they fought for the show they must be super connected 3,700. Like, 3,700 is the reach. I'm like, and I was happy for that. But it's like, now I'm like, shoot, I should have just made, like, a straight-up, like, yeah. movie for Longmire people because they are they are assembled. They tell people to watch their shows, and there's not much out there for them. Dedicated fans. The fans right now are doing a good job and trying to save, for me, the Bruce Timm Justice League show. Remember mm -hmm. back in the day? Mm -hmm. So, because he did uh, the Batman animated series, and they did they followed up with Superman, and then they did Justice League. And Justice League kind of got the short shaft, basically, and they didn't mm -hmm. really kind of give it a proper run. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to bring that back. And the great thing is it's a cartoon. So you could just bring back all the voices. Exactly. Right? If you can bring back the guy from Transformers, like yeah. <laughs> Mullen, Peter Cullen, Peter Cullen, Peter Cullen, yeah. Peter Cullen back to do it. It's like you could bring people back at sort of any time to sort of do these cartoons. And honestly, I, you saw that with Futurama. You saw that with Family Guy. People are like, why is Family Guy in your movie? It's like, because Family Guy was, it was reruns on the comedy. Now, I'm always defending what's not in the movie. It'd be like, I, you have to remember, I'm trying to make a movie about people trying to save a show. And it's not like there was DVD sales, mass DVD sales, and reruns on the comedy network having like huge ratings brought the Family Guy back. I, there's not like, John Smith, you know, or <laughs> Jane Smith that I could go and it'd be like, I organized this campaign to do that. So it's like, it was really about finding the people and also finding people with very emotional stories, you know, and then also Fireflies. Why did you do Fireflies? That one I'm getting. Like, Because like, Firefly fans made a movie about them saving yeah. the, the surrender. Like, you want just that story? There's an hour and a half documentary out there you can rent, you know? So it would have just been sort of covered ground for the most part. But it's like, I think I, I have a good group of shows really ranging from like the 60s through the 80s through the 90s, the early 2000s and and right up till now, where you something in there you're going to like. And even if you just generally like TV, you're going to like one of the shows that's in this. All right. Thank you, Michael, for coming in. Uh, so the documentary is United We Fan. 
and it'll be premiering at uh, Hot Docs April 28, which is super exciting. High Woo! five for that! Yay! So, and it'll be interesting to see now what kind of uh, what kind of spark it catches with the audience, and what kind of if it inspires people much like Star Trek does. Uh, I hope so. That would be that would be the greatest thing. If I if somebody said I watched your documentary and then I decided to fight for this show, that would just be like, and that's why the movie was made. So I'll be very excited. All right, we'll have to look forward to that. And if it happens, you got to come back in and then like oh for sure. Tell me like who who saved what. Even if you fail, even if you fail, try. That's my big thing in this. Like, not every fan campaign is successful. But it's successful in that you stay at a community and fought for something you loved. It's successful if you're raising money for charity in the, uh, in the name of the show that you love. It's successful in that you did something that scared you. That's a successful thing, win or lose, you know? And I think that's, I think, a real important thing for people to keep in mind. It's not... It's not you just necessarily like jousting at windmills. It's not like you're like, I'm going to fail for sure. Yeah, you might. You might fail. But if you are failing in a way that keeps you as a stronger community, then you're not failing at all. All right. That's perfect. Let's end it there. Thank you for coming in. This is Sam Yunin from My Summer Lair. You can follow me on the Twitter at MyPalSammy. 